So we're in Proverbs chapter 6, and uh, my plan is to take us up to verse 19, and then uh, I'll, the plan is to take the, the rest of chapter 6 and move right into chapter 7, because they're similar subjects uh, when we get to that portion of scripture. But let me, let me uh, pray for the, uh, the preaching of the word. Our Father and our God, we pause before we read your word uh, to remind ourselves, uh, Lord, that we're handling reverently the very word of God. And Lord, your word is true. Lord, your, your word is wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us wise uh, and change us for the good because we spent time with you and in your word. And Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of Scripture is practical, so I, I, I should say that before I say we're heading into a very practical <laughs> section of Scripture um, in Proverbs chapter 6. And there's a lot we can learn uh, as we study this. And, and the beginning of, of chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, is a warning against financial foolishness. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, I already know how to handle money. I've handled my money. Maybe you're getting up in years. Well, we need to hand this wisdom off to the next generation and the grandkids and the great-grandkids. So we want to be in tune to what God has to say about finances and handling money. So let me read this uh, for us. It's, uh, again, Proverbs 6, and it's verses 1 to 5. It says, My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You have taken by the words of, uh, you are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble, humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So a, a warning against financial uh, foolishness. Um, and I'm going to take us into a couple other avenues to expound on this a little bit. Proverbs has a lot to say about money and how we handle money. It's a subject that we're going to come back to over and over again throughout the book of, of Proverbs. So a couple things uh, to look at here. Uh, th this warning here, by the way, becoming surety for your friend is, is and we'll talk about this in a minute, is co-signing uh, for, for somebody else's loan, somebody else's debt. The, the Bible says over and over again, uh, don't do that. Do not do that. It's foolishness. The Bible warns against it. Don't, don't, don't do it. But before I get to that subject, a little bit about loans and interest and, and uh, what the Bible says, what God says about uh, those subjects. Interest, charging interest on a loan uh, is forbidden between the brethren. Okay, the, the Bible says from, for a Hebrew to a Hebrew, they are not to charge each other interest. Um, if, and I would say it carries over to the church. Uh, if we're to help each other out, we're not to, to charge one another interest as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're the family of God, and we're to help each other. Uh, and I'll give you a couple scriptures to look at, but Deuteronomy 23, uh, verse 19 and this is pretty plain. It says, You shall not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest, but to your brother, you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God may bless you and all in which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Now, that's pretty plain in Scripture. The Jew to another Jew was not to charge interest. If there was some Phoenician you know, foreigner that came into town and was looking for money, they were allowed to charge interest to a foreigner. And I'd say that carries over to the church. You know, If you're, you're charging interest to somebody outside the church, but if it's a brother or a sister in Christ, we're to help each other. If we have the means by which to help each other, we're not to charge interest. 
I, I remember it just it, my own flesh and blood brother when, when I was a young man many years ago um, when I was about 19 years old I, I my girlfriend <laughs> at that time uh, we were looking at land out here we found the land that now I own a house on and and I, I saw that land and I did not have the money to purchase that land and I I went to my flesh and blood a blood brother uh, Steve and I said hey look I, I found this land I was just starting to get my act together, so to speak. I hadn't come to the Lord yet, but I was getting my act together. And I said, I want to buy this land, and, and I need the, the deposit, the down payment. I had a, a job finally. I was working construction. And he's like, well, how much money do you need? And I said, I need $2,000. That's how cheap land was back then, to put the deposit down, and, and I'll be paying the, the loan off, but I'll also pay you back. And he thought about it, and he goes, you know, I, I can do that for you. I'll, I'll loan you the 2000 But he, my brother wisely, in my opinion, said, but I want a contract with you. And he didn't charge me any interest. The contract was just simply uh, 10 payments of $200 monthly until the loan was paid off, which I paid off that, that loan. But that's an example of, of how we're to help one another. My brother you know, gave me a hand up, not a hand out and help me kind of get moving into life and, and enabled me. But we're to help each other out. It's okay to say this isn't a gift, this is a loan to a, a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, but we're not to ask for anything in addition to what we're, we're actually helping them out with. You know, we, I'd like the full 2000 back, and here's the terms of the agreement, but I'm not charging you interest. That's, a, that's what the Bible says. The Bible has in another category um, beyond just what we would normally call interest. Uh, the word in the scripture is, is usury. Usury is forbidden uh, that we would charge usury to anybody, whether it's a, a, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, a Christian, or somebody outside of the church. Usury is exorbitant, uh, exorbitant um, interest. It, it, it's, it's a ridiculous amount of, of interest because we're taking advantage of somebody because they're down and out. We're taking advantage maybe of, of the poor. And Leviticus 25 uh, touches on this, and then I'll, I'll read a psalm that touches on it. But Levit Leviticus 25.35 says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. There's no bones about it. You, you will help him. You shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him. It's because it's a brother, right? You're not allowed to charge interest. But those are, are both mentioned. There's, there's two categories. There's usury and there's interest. And it says, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Right? It's okay to expect repayment. Um, and we'll talk about gifts and, and generosity in a minute, but, but it's okay to ask for the repayment, but you're not to charge interest to a brother, and you're not to charge usury. In Psalm 15, um, th that psalm is talking about who may dwell with God, is how that psalm begins. And then it goes through a list of this is what God's people look like, is basically what the psalm says. And in verse 5 of that psalm, one of those characteristics of those who may dwell with God says, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. In other words, we'll have our place with God if we don't charge usury. Years ago, a number of years ago, uh, I was asked to go to Parkersburg, West Virginia for about three weeks kissed my wife, patted my kids on the head and got in the car with my suitcase and went to Parkersburg for my company for about three weeks. I had a big storm. And if you've ever been to Parkersburg, West Virginia, and I haven't been there for a while, I was kind of taken aback at how many used car lots there were in Parkersburg. It's like every corner is a used car lot. And I happened to take with me our van, which was falling apart at the time. Um, the door was just about to fall. As a matter of fact, when I finally did trade it in for a used car, this isn't part of the story, but I'll tell you anyway. I opened the side door and it fell off. You know, the minivan. And the guy's like, just throw it in. And I, I threw it in the, in the van and I traded it out for my new used car. 
But I, I was looking and I was stopping at all these, these used car lots, checking out prices and haggling and all that stuff. And I went to a place, and I was, you know, I was dressed for work, I had my white collar on, and, and so I, I looked, you know, like business casual. And I went into a, a particular place that was kind of flashy, and as soon as I got in the door, he was the only one in there, the sales guy, and he said, he says, do you got good credit? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, you don't want to buy a car from me. <laughs> And somehow he just recognized that I wasn't the type of clientele that he was used to dealing with, in my opinion, because he would charge usury. He was taking advantage of people that couldn't get a vehicle, they were poor, they were destitute, and he was one of these people who would say, well, I'll sell you a car at 26% interest. And in my book, that's usury. God tells us not to do that. It's okay to make money. It's, it's not unbiblical to make a profit. But usury is really taking advantage of the poor, is what it really is. And you've probably seen examples of that yourself in your own life. So all of us are warned in this text, going back to our scripture, against we're warned against becoming surety or security for somebody else's loan. Uh, you're not to do that. I, I used to listen to Larry Burkett all the time on, on the radio, uh, Money Matters. I don't know if you ever used to hear him. He's with the Lord now. Um, very wise counselor on money, and I learned a lot from listening to him. But And I just listened. There's another show, and I, I, I wish I knew the name of the Christian radio program, but I was just listening to it about a week ago. And they have callers call in, and, and sure enough, it was the same with Larry Burkett. A woman calls in and says, well... You know, I, my daughter has a credit card that I got for her, and um, it, but my name's on the credit card, and, and you know she's charging it up, and you know I was trying to get her credit built up for her, and now she's charged. She won't stop charging. She's become addicted to shopping, and and now I, I can't barely keep up with these payments. She's not paying off the loan, and the first thing the radio guy said was. You do know the Bible says not to do that, right? I mean, before we even talk about how to get out of this, you know the Bible says you're not supposed to do that. Well, yeah, I know, but she, she really needed to... You see where we go and her thing? I mean, I thought she knew she wasn't supposed to do it. The Bible says don't do that, and she did it anyway. And the radio host said, which is accurate, is good advice. He said, you know, it's okay if you want to give her a gift, if you had the, the, the means by which you could say, you know, I'm going to gift this money to you, and, and maybe you can use that to begin to build your own credit or something along the line, but don't co-sign. Because when you co-sign for somebody else's loan, you now become responsible for the actions of somebody that you have no control over. They, they, they might seem very trustworthy to you. They may be your family member. You have no control over what they're going to do. And now you're responsible for what they do when they get out of control. And the Bible says don't do that. Don't be surety. Don't be security. Don't co-sign a note. Don't do that. Um, what does he say to do? It's pretty drastic. He says, my son, if you, if you do this, if you've done this, now you've bound yourself to a contract. Go humble yourself, and whatever you do, get out of that contract. Humble yourself, he says. Plead with your friend. Uh, do it immediately, he says. Don't, don't let any sleep uh, infect your eyes. Don't go to bed. You've got to get out of this contract. Whatever you do. Uh, Holman uh, takes this and talks about the gazelle uh, with the hunter. Holman uh, Bible commentary says, when, when a gazelle or a bird is caught in a trap, they do not nap for a while before they try to escape. They struggle immediately, knowing that it's only a matter of time before doom strikes. Debt works the same way. It's only a matter of time before the consequences arrive. And if you don't think the Bible says this over and over again, let me read you three more Proverbs. Proverbs 11.15, He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but one who hates being surety is secure. Proverbs 17.18, A man devoid of understanding, that's another way of talking about wisdom, a man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. Proverbs 22.26, Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. Don't do it. Don't be a guarantor. But do be generous. It, the Bible tells us to be, to be generous to people. 
Michael uh, Blue uh, had an article called Five Conclusions on Money from Jesus. It was a good article at uh, rombluesinstitute.com. Uh, Ron Blue is another really good financial teacher, Christian financial teacher. And in that article he writes, the covenant model assumes material reward for piety never reappears in Jesus' teaching and is explicitly contradicted throughout. Holiness and nearness to God are, are the rewards for righteous living and are both things that will draw us closer to God instead of having the danger of drawing us away from Him. Seen as such, riches can be viewed as a tool to be used, but not as a reward to be sought. I thought that was really wise. Riches are to be viewed as a tool to be used, not as a reward to be sought. And if God has given you any any level of wealth at all, it's a tool. And think of it that way. We're, we're stewards of God owns it all. We're not. We're, you know, we, we read a scripture this morning, didn't we, Gary? That we came to this world with nothing, and we're leaving with nothing. You know. And you got a little lifespan where God's entrusted you with some some maybe some wealth or some some money. It's a tool that you use to bring glory to God, right? To, to use, to, to, to build up his house of worship, that you use to maybe be generous to others, to, to, to spread and expand uh, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So generosity is to be commended. Last little subject on money we'll deal with this morning. Generosity is to be uh, commended. One uh, writer wrote, if we can afford to be surety for our neighbor, we can clearly afford to lend him the money ourselves. Don't co-sign. If you've got the wherewithal and, and, and you feel led to help your neighbor, maybe gift the neighbor some money or, or maybe maybe loan the, the neighbor money yourself with a contract, hopefully, uh, so everything's in writing. There's no confusion about what's been said and what we agreed to. Jesus, let's, let's look at Jesus and what he had to say. Uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, Jesus says in verse 34, And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend, lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and the evil. In other words, he's saying if, if you're generous, not, not foolishly generous, there's bounds to all of this, but, but to be a generous person, you're, you're likened to your Heavenly Father. That could be because your Heavenly Father is generous to, to even people that are evil and don't even love Him. God, God is a generous God. So don't lend for the interest that you're going to earn. Lend for the sheer joy of helping people that are in need. Just help them because they're in need. And in doing so, the Bible says, we'll be called the sons of the Most High. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm reading this out of the NIV because uh, I, I think it phrases it a little bit easier to understand. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, this is talking about God's generosity towards us. Listen to the language here. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have been lavished with the riches of God's grace. I mean, think of that. In response to that, God's entrusted you maybe with some wealth, maybe a little bit more than what you need to get by this week. And God brings into your path somebody in need. Be generous. God's lavished His grace on you. And, and we can give all the glory to God and say, you know what, the Lord's leading me to help you with this. I'm, I'm going to give this to you. This is a gift. You don't have to repay it. It's, it's God's just leading me to help you because I know you need some help. You didn't even ask for help. But God's been so gracious to me. And it might even open the door for you to share the gospel with somebody that doesn't know the Lord. Now listen to that same, uh, uh, that same passage in a paraphrase. Uh, so this isn't a word-for-word -word translation, but I think it gets the feel for the passage. Uh, Living Bible it says, So overflowing is his kindness towards us 
that he took away all of our sins through the blood of his son by whom we are saved and he has showered down upon us the richness of his grace for how well he understands us and knows what is best for us at all times. Isn't that a gracious God we serve? Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives and gives. So turning the corner from that, it's going to be a theme we're going to come back to over and over in Proverbs uh, to be wise about money. By the way, if I can throw this out, when I first came to the Lord, and I've, I know I've told you this a million times, I thought I had the whole world figured out. And then it, it just like getting hit with a baseball bat in the forehead. I came to the Lord, came to my senses like, like the, uh, uh, the uh, prodigal son eating pods that were meant for the pigs. And the, the Lord just radically saved me, just like any salvation is radical. And so I, I, I was hungry to know the Word of God. And the first devotional book I bought, and I shared this with you before, but I went to a Christian bookstore. I thought, wow, everything, everything was new to me. I had brand new eyes, brand new appetites, everything. And I was like, couldn't wait to get a book. And the first book I bought, I thought it was a devotional book, but it was actually the book of Galatians. And So I bought this book, and I took it out, and I thought, I'm going to read this devotional book. And I'm reading it, and I'm thinking, I don't understand a thing that's talking about it. I must have read that book 25 times. And then I realized, this is one of the books of the Bible. So Galatians is near to my heart because I finally, through God's grace, understood that book a little bit. The second book I bought, though, because I had gotten myself into foolish debt. Not deep debt, but to me, I didn't have any money, so it was foolish debt. And so the second book I bought was How to Navigate Finances God's Way. And I can't remember the author of the book, but it was, it was a sound biblical handling of what the Bible says, mostly out of Proverbs, what the Bible says about money, how to handle money. And, and I and my bride began to put that into practice. And you, you, you don't have to test God to prove that his word's right. But believe me, his word's right. When you, when you do it God's way, God tells us how to handle the, what he's entrusted to us. And if we do it God's way, things tend to go pretty good. You know, if we do it God's way. So the second thing in chapter 6 is, is the folly of sloth. The folly of sloth. And, and that's verses 6 uh, to 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. This is not entomology. This, the Bible isn't giving us an in-depth science study of insects. Okay, so some people go, well, you know, I've studied ants, and there does seem to be a hierarchy to what they're doing down there. What he's saying is just a casual observer watching an anthill, watching these little rascals running around, and it's like, you know, if anything, you're not going to call these little guys lazy. You don't, you don't see one of them kind of leaning up against a tree, not one of them smoking a cigarette. I mean, they're, they're pretty busy. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing their work. And that's what he's doing. He's just, he's just a casual observer saying, you know, when I look at these ants, I tend to see industrious activity, not a lazy man's uh, lack of activity. And he's, he's making some discernment through God, uh, God's uh, enablement to, to learn something from looking at something as simple as an, an ant mound, right, is what he's doing. He says that they take the initiative, and that's God's wisdom to us, is, is that they don't need somebody yelling at them and screaming at them, somebody that's the captain. If, 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 if you know, the little ant cap, captain's not in the room, they're just all kind of kicking back because the boss isn't there. They're working, whether they have anybody taking uh, any kind of an oversight to them or not, they're, they're in initiative. Uh, they, they take the initiative to do the work. And the Bible commends that to us. 
Um, over and over again, especially in the book of Proverbs, uh, the, the, the Lord commends to us to be industrious. Uh, to, to, the, God's given us all something to do. E- even if we have some kind of a, a, a handicap of some sort that prevents us from being able to do what that person could do, we can still be industrious. That, that's why I've never liked governments that, that in any way would, would further somebody's ability to be non-industrious. People need the work. But, you know, back at uh, my, my grandfather, uh, back in the 30s, uh, worked the camps because the uh, Depression, the Great Depression, it came and they, they opened up the, I can't remember, it was called the CCC course, you know. And he was a part of that because somebody said, you know, the, these young men, they need to feel good about themselves. They need to earn income and send that money back to their families. And my grandfather was one that went to the camps and built the state parks and sent the money back to his mother because she didn't, his father had died when he was 13. So he was the, the breadwinner. And, and somebody understood that, that that's a good thing. Let's write in the scriptures to be industrious. Right? Colossians 3.22 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, I always look at those passages and I, I think of the relationship between the worker and, and the employer. And I, I, I'm, I'm a worker. <laughs> I have somebody who's above me and, and I have others that, that report to me. But I'm, I'm to be industrious whether my boss is in the room watching me or not. I'm working unto the Lord, right? I, I want to do all things unto the Lord. So I want to do a good job. I've always said I thought the, the, the best and most uh, industrious, hardest worker at any place should be the Christian should be the Christian. They, you know, we start a little bit early. We work a few minutes late. I remember when I uh, was working construction, and my boss really liked this. I, was, he, he, you know, we wouldn't. You know, they start wrapping up tools. At, I think we got done at three thirty. I always gave an extra five minutes, and my boss said, "Why do you do that?" I said, "You always should give five minutes back to the boss." And it wasn't long before I was running the cruise, by the way. <laughs> but but you just you should do that. You're the Christian. You, you should be industrious. That's what the Bible says. We shouldn't be the lazy one. Considering future needs, these these little ants are right. They provide supplies in the summer. They gather the food in, in the harvest. They they see down the road a little bit, and and that's what we're to do as Christians. To, not that we would would hoard. The Bible warns against you know building bigger barns, but we should be able to look down the road a little bit and plan a little bit, maybe budget a little bit. I know at the end of August I'm going to have to send the local government money to pay my my property tax. I shouldn't get to the end of August and go, oh what. It's tax time again? What do I do? I better start calling the churches. Can you help me out? I didn't save up for, for my taxes. No. We look down the road a little bit and we budget and we plan. God's given you what you need but he expects you to be wise with it and to budget and, and to you know look down for future needs. That's what these little ants are doing as they're storing away little bits of leaves and little bits of seed and whatnot as they're preparing for the, the winter at times. The virtue of wisdom is not just being busy The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, it's not just being busy, but in having a proper view of forthcoming needs that motivate one to action. That's that's a good saying right there. It's not just just being busy for busyness sake. I saw a t-shirt one time that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being industrious and wise with our time. Budgeting for the future, not, not hoarding, right? The ants, the, this is Proverbs 30, verse 25. The ants are people not strong. I guess relatively they are. They're carrying around these big old leaves. But the, the ants are people that are not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. They're, they're storing up. They're stocking up. The, the pantry's got some food because winter's coming. And this sounds so, so harmless, doesn't it? Verse 10. A little sleep... A little slumber, a little folding of the hands, the little folding of the hands to sleep. And then disaster pounces on you. That's what the Bible says. Now that that exact same phraseology is found in Proverbs chapter 24. Now here in chapter 6, it's connected to uh, Solomon observing ants. And he's learning something. See, God can teach us through all kinds of means as we're just navigating this world. And and then 24, walking past somebody's vineyard, let's just let it go to waste. He hasn't maintained it, and God teaches him in chapter 24. And this is what it says. This is, this is Proverbs 24, verse 30. 
says, I went by the field of a lazy man. Well, there's our sluggard, right? I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. And when I saw it, I considered it well. In other words, I sat there for a minute. and you know, It's almost like he said, Lord, can I learn something from this? We don't have to learn everything we learn in life from our own mistakes, beloved. You know, we learn a lot when we make a mistake. If God teaches us, we you know, get back up, dust off, and you know, head off in a better direction. We can learn from other people's mistakes. And, and I think the order I get, the more I'd, I'd rather learn from somebody else's mistake than, than making these mistakes myself. But so he considers the, the matter. He says, I considered it well. I looked on it, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. In other words, he's looking at that and he's thinking, this didn't happen all all at once. You you see somebody that just let their house fall apart. Just just out of of a laziness. Didn't happen all at once. It was just, I'm just going to take a little nap. And, and, And an hour turns into a day, and a day turns into a week, and the weeks roll on into months and then years. And before you know it, the, the lazy person is being attacked here, he says, almost like an armed man. He's lost everything. It's, it's like being robbed through your own laziness. And he says this, this is verse 9 of Proverbs 6, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? So left unchecked, this is going to lead to poverty. That's the wisdom of Proverbs. We're not just to be busy for busyness sake. We're to be industrious for the Lord. And we're not to be lazy. We're not to be lazy. And, and the Christian, this also, uh, you know, physical exercise does you some good, Paul said to Timothy. But spiritual exercise, that's what we, we need to apply this to our spiritual lives as well. And, and you could really apply that whole phrase there to things such as studying your word. You just just a little little closing of the hands, a little just a little nap, a, just a little bit. I'll just put the Bible over here for a day. I'll, we're just going to skip church this week, and and little by little, by little by little, you, you drift away from God, away from God's word, away from God's people. And and beloved, we've all seen it happen to, to friends that we love dearly. And you think, well, whatever happened to that person? Well, it was just a, a a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And the next thing you know, poverty. First Thessalonians five six says, "Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Let us be alert. Let us not sleep like others do." Spurgeon snatched onto that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, and he writes, "Sleepy Christian, let me shout in thine ears." Thou art sleeping while souls are being lost, sleeping while men are being damned, sleeping while hell is being peopled, sleeping while Christ is being dishonored, sleeping while the devil is grinning at thy sleepy face, sleeping while demons are dancing around thy slumbering carcass and telling it in hell that a Christian is asleep. That's convicting. That's really convicting. So the folly of sloth, that's a theme that will come up in in Proverbs over and over. And then uh, the rest of what we'll study here is to beware of the wicked man. And it's really not just men. This could be a wicked woman as well. But here it's, it's a wicked man. Uh, let's look at uh, beginning in verse 12 down to 15. And then the rest of that, this section here, 16 to 19, is going to be these attributes of, of the wicked. But it reads like this. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. 
Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. So let's look at this wicked man because we don't want to be that man. Speaks of, in the original, it's, it's his crooked mouth, a perverse mouth. It's a crooked mouth, which makes us think of lies and slander and rumors and gossip, stirring up trouble. You'll see the trajectory of all of this is discord. This individual is wicked in many, many ways, but the calamity that he's causing within the community is discord. Keep that in mind as we look at this individual. His deceptive gestures. It sounds a little strange to us in verse 13 that he winks and with his eyes he shuffles his feet, he points with his face. It sounds like somebody dancing, doesn't it? But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about deceptive gestures. The New Living Translation paraphrase, I think, gets this. Um, they're trying to interpret the verse for us. But this is, this is what the, the translation, uh, the paraphrase says. Says signaling their true intentions to their friends by making signs with their eyes and their feet and their fingers. In other words, they're playing you. They're playing you. Their friends are right behind you. They're talking to you. They're, maybe they're going to borrow some money from you. They're actually a, maybe a sluggard, uh, a softful person. But whatever's going on, they're signaling to the people behind because they're playing you. That, that's what's going on in this proverb. And this is why it also is culminating with, into discord in, in the community. The, the heart is wicked. The core of this person's uh, being is, is wicked. It's bent on evil continually. Years ago, I remember teaching uh, at a Micah uh, a Bible study, and this verse came to mind. But Micah chapter 2, verse 1 says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And the interpretation or the, the exposition of that verse is maybe, and, and I pray that you, know, you, you, you know, enjoy your day and, and you are industrious and you enjoy an evening and you have a nice meal and, and then it's bedtime. And so you, you hit the bed and you've worked hard, so you're tired, been gardening or whatever it is that you did. And, it's, that, that sleep, and all sleep's not evil. God allows us to have that wonderful rest and you hit the pillow and right before you drift off, you're thanking God. You're, you're rehearsing the day in your mind and you're like, Lord, today was a great day. Thank you so much and praise you. Praise you for your goodness as you drift off to sleep. Not the wicked man. The wicked man hits the pillow and his mind's spinning. And he starts thinking up evil he can be doing. And he's too tired to do it yet. But as soon as he gets up in the morning, he's thinking, you know what? As soon as I get up tomorrow morning, I'm hitting the road. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And it's wicked. It's evil. That's, what, that's what's going on. That's what the wheels are spinning in his head. It's a complete opposite of those that know the Lord savingly. Titus 3.10 speaks of a divisive person sowing discord. Um, Wolke interprets that as he unleashes conflict. And that could be in the family, this wicked person. That could be in the community as a whole. Beloved, that can be in church. I don't know if you've been in a church where somebody was a contentious individual and just unleashed conflict within a church. That's a difficult thing to deal with because you have to deal with it. But uh, like Titus 3.10 says, Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. Now this is the Apostle Paul talking to Titus who was left in Crete to set things in order in the churches. He was, he was like an overseer of the churches in Crete. And he says, you got a divisive person in your church, warn them once, warn them twice, after that have nothing to do with them. Why? That seems harsh. Because he's going to sow discord in the church. And you have to deal with that individual and, and either get him to stop or get him to go. Because he is going to disrupt the peaceful unity that you have. The Bible tells us, I believe in Ephesians, that we're to endeavor to keep the, the bond of the Spirit. Right? That, that's what we're to do as Christians in the church, to that bond that we have in the Spirit. Romans 16, 17, this is going to sound like what I just read. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and, and avoid them. 
and avoid them. Stay away from these contentious people that sow discord in the family, in the community, and especially in the church. And the inevitable judgment, right? It says, suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. This this wicked individual. Now, the, the rest of what I want to look at, which is uh, 16 to 19, is, I believe, still connected to uh, verse 12 to 15. We're still talking about this wicked individual. And, and here's the attributes. And, and the Lord is saying that the attributes of the, of the wicked are abominable to God. That's a strong phrase, abominable. God hates these attributes in the, in the wicked. And, and let's look at them. Uh, I'll just read it and then we'll come back and take them one at a time. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomin- abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. We don't want to have any of these attributes uh, in our in our persons. We want to make sure that we, we go to the Lord if we see any of this in us and say, Lord, I see this in me. Cleanse me of this. Cleanse me of this. I don't want to be uh, abominable uh, in your sight, at least these attributes. So it's interesting to me, uh, Walt Key, one of my favorite uh, proverb uh, commentaries uh, that I have, we wouldn't notice this because it's all translated, obviously, into the English language, but in the original language, Something's being conveyed here. And he calls it the hissing of the serpent. And this is what it says in the original language. Sesain seba napso. Doesn't that sound like a snake? You can almost hear the serpent from the garden in that. Sesain seba napso. Six hates seven him. Is what that says in the original language. I found that interesting. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The yielding of the body. Do you see all the body parts again? The eyes, the tongue, the hands, the heart, the feet, the mouth. The yielding of the body to the work of evil. And beloved, we got redeemed out of that. That's where we all lived before we knew Jesus Christ savingly. Maybe even unbeknownst to ourselves, just in our own stupor, living in, in an unsaved way, lending our body parts to do evil. And that's why Romans chapter 6 says this. Romans 6 verse 13 says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God is what the Bible says. So the first pride, a proud, a proud look. I found this uh, quote uh, from uh, the preacher Paul Washer. And he, he, I'm quoting him here. He says, pride is a terrible and dangerous thing it can take so many forms. It can, it can even assume the appearance of humility. Pride can lead not only to self-exaltation, but also to self-abasement. The key to battling pride is not found in struggling against thinking too highly of ourselves or in striving to think of ourselves as lowly. The key is found in simply not thinking about ourselves at all but setting our minds on Christ and the needs of others. Setting our minds on Christ, thinking much of Christ and how we might intervene on Christ's behalf to help other people. Not really thinking. I don't know about you, I I get so self-absorbed at times and that's a bad place to go. I don't know if you've ever been there and you're thinking about yourself. We call them pity parties at times. That's a bad place to wallow. It really is. You know, Hopefully, by God's grace, I'll spend less and less time there. But I think Paul Washer's right. We need to get our minds up out of ourselves, think about how everything impacts us, and think about Christ. Set our minds on Christ. The second thing here is that God hates lying. Literally, liars. Uh, 
uh, one uh, d- defined this as ag- aggressive deceit intended to harm another. Aggressive deceit intended to harm another. We're, we're, we're to be truth speakers. God hates lying. I read this to you not that long ago. Maybe it was last week. But John 8 says, You are of your father the devil, Jesus says, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We don't want to run around sounding like the devil. <laughs> we should be truth speakers, you know. It doesn't mean it, it, you have to say everything, you know. I always think of that commercial where Lincoln's standing there and his wife goes, does this make me look fat? And Lincoln, who cannot tell a lie, right? And he's like, well, maybe just a little, you know, yeah. We get, so be cautious with how we speak. But we want to be truth speakers, you know. Uh, Colossians 3, 9 says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off that old man with his deeds. Yeah, that's who you used to be. Don't put that off. Don't lie. Be truth speakers to one another. Again, Spurgeon says, Do you resolve to do the right and to love the true? Depend upon it. You will get no assistance from this world. Of its maxims, nine out of ten are false, and the other one is selfish. And even that one, which is selfish, has a lie at the bottom of it. It flows against the way of the world. The whole world is filled. I mean, there's a, the psalmist David said, I, I declared all men are liars, the psalm says. You know, it's, it's our sinful bent, and we have to struggle against it to say, you know what? I, I, I just said something, and that's really not, that's really not true. And, and just... Repent of it and speak the truth in love, the Bible says to do. The French Enlightenment uh, essayist uh, Michael uh, Montaigne said this about lying. He said, Lying is indeed an accursed vice. We are men and we have relations with one, with one another only by speech. If we recognize the horror and gravity of an untruth, we should more justifiably punish it with fire than any other crime. I commonly find people taking the most ill-advised pains to correct their children for their harmless faults and worrying them about heedless acts which leave no trace and have no consequences, lying in a lesser degree obstinacy are, in my opinion, the only faults whose birth and progress we should constantly oppose. They grow with a child's growth, and once the tongue has got the knack of lying, it is difficult to imagine how impossible it is to correct it. James talks about that, doesn't he? How That little member in our body sets, sets the whole world on fire, the woods on fire, steals, steers a ship like a rudder right down the wrong path. What an abomination we can, we can cause with our own tongues. We should be truth speakers. And then he speaks of them being murderous. Being murderous. Ezekiel twenty two twenty seven says, Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. Murderous. Somebody wrote, and I stole it, <laughs> The godly love God and neighbor and use property to honor God and to help others, but the wicked love things and they use people and even use God to gain possessions, right? They only pray to God when they want something, when they need something. Lord, get her for me. Remember Samson said that to his parents. I want that, I want that, that woman. Get her for me, right? I just want her, a possession. Murderous. We even murder to, to get. And, and, and you can even see that sometimes on some of the TV, uh, the, 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 the uh, detective shows, where they're telling two stories, and you're thinking, you killed somebody for that? For something because they wanted their land or their car or whatever it might be, murderous because they want something. And then they have hearts that calculates. That's literally what it's saying that, that, that calculates evil. Or it, it, it could be uh, they plan evil, they conceive e- evil, they, they scheme, they're thinking things through. Uh, Romans 1 30 says they're inventors of evil things. 
They, they, they scheme, and, and their heart, just right out of the heart, they're coming up with ways to commit evil, probably just think, to get ahead in life, and they're constantly conceiving, calculating evil things. God hates that. God hates that. They have feet that rush to evil. Uh, somebody wrote, a zeal to follow evil impulses as soon as possible. As soon as that evil impulse enters their mind, boom, they're, they're going off to go take care of that evil thing. And then he mentions they're perjurers. They're, they're deceptive witnesses. They give false testimony. And, and God takes that very seriously, especially you'll see that in the Old Testament. How, how many times God comes against the nation because their judges aren't exercising truth. They, they aren't, they aren't uh, delivering justice to the people. They're, they're being bribed. People are being bribed for false testimonies. God takes a, st- a strong stand against that. As a matter of fact, when you get to Deuteronomy, he, he, he says if, you, if you're a witness and your testimony leads to that person's execution, you're the first one to throw the stone. You've you got to take it that way. You know, if you're going to convict this person, you're picking up a rock. And, don't, and if we find out that you were a false uh, testimony, if we find that out, then you're going to get the punishment that he would have got. That's what Deuteronomy says. God takes a strong position in that. And then the seventh, the last, and this is all culminating to this, this peak, is one who does what? Who sows discord among the brothers. One who's, and you think that's in the same pile as murder and lying, false witness, one who sows discord among the brethren. God hates that. God hates that. Well, we don't want to be those people. <laughs> And if you see any of this, and, and whenever I come to a list like this, and we've been looking, by the way, in the mornings, I've got Gary reading the law. You have to realize that's law. The, the law condemns us. We don't live up to God's standard. So when we hear these things, we, we want to walk in a way that, that pleases God. But whenever we look at a list of, of God's law, what to do and what not to do, we always find room for repenting, don't we? And so let, let's do that very thing in prayer as we close. Our Father and our God, um, Lord, your word is true. And Lord, we all find room for repenting. Lord, we've all lied. Lord, I'm sure we've all said something about somebody that wasn't true. Lord, we, we don't want to be abominable in your sight. We thank you for the, the, the refreshing spirit that, that just cleanses us, Lord. We're cleansed by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from these sins. But Lord, we want to walk in a way that pleases you. So Lord, help us. Lord, be at work in us. If you shine your light on us, Lord, show us any evil intentions in our souls, Lord, that we might just repent before you and be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in the peace of Christ Jesus to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.